You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual The Golden Globes, maybe the last Golden Globes ever with the way world events are trending. Quick digression, I'm not sure the world would be safer without X person in it is an argument Republicans should be running around making publicly. We aren't the only ones out there with drones. Anyway, the Golden Globes, I didn't watch. While so many of my fellow gay men are obsessed with award shows, the snubs, the red carpets, the speeches, I never fail to miss the Golden Globes. Or an Oscars, or a Tony's, or a Screen Actor Guild Awards, or the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Awards, Independent Spirit Awards, Miss That, Makeup Artists and Hairstylist Guild Awards, never seen it, New York Film Critics Circle Awards, Toronto Film Critics Association Awards, the Oklahoma Film Critics Association Awards. That last one's a real one. The Oklahoma Film Critics Association is a real organization. I looked it up. Its mission is to support film culture and advance the film conversation in the state of Oklahoma. And while I thought they might exist solely to hand out awards to Kirk Cameron, that wasn't the case. The OFCA already announced their 2019 awards. Best Film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Best Actor, Adam Sandler, Uncut Gems. Best Actress, Lupita Nyong'o, for us. Nyong'o may have been snubbed by the Golden Globes, but not by the OFCA. Anywhere with so many award shows out there, avoiding them isn't easy. So on Sunday night, I got off Twitter and poured over the results of Pornhub's 2019 year in review instead. For the last seven years, Pornhub has released a deep dive into their data. And with 42 billion unique visitors to Pornhub last year alone, it is a universe of data. The top three search items at Pornhub in 2019 were Amateur Alien and POV, virtual reality porn. People who logged on to Pornhub in Mississippi spent the most time at the site. People who logged on in Kansas spent the least time on the site. People in Kansas, they got things to do. Going to rub that one out quickly. Get back to work. Lesbian, most viewed category in North and South America. While anal was the most viewed category in France and Germany and Turkey and Iran. And all that lesbian porn, turns out it's more popular with women than with men. Lesbian was the number one category for women watching Pornhub when they broke out the data by gender, but it came in eighth for men after Japanese amateur MILF Hentai Ebony, most popular search term in Africa, and Anal. And while men are faulted for liking them young, Mature was the third most popular category for men, but came in eighth for women. All this is fascinating stuff, way more interesting to me than any of the speeches at the Golden Globes. But I was distressed by one data point concerning my fellow gay men. The top category among gay men, the single most viewed category, straight guys. So kind of like the Golden Globes itself, there appears to be a lot of gay men out there who are obsessed with straight men. I don't get it. I'm one of those gay guys with a thing for gay guys. Now, there are a lot of hot straight guys out there. Of course, I get that. And most gay men do identify as straight early in life. Usually when we're at that stage of peak adolescent male horniness, you tell people you're straight, you want people to believe you, usually for your own safety, but you don't want everyone to believe you. You want to be seen, but safe. You want to be seduced. You want some hot guy to come along and refuse to take straight for an answer, which is hugely problematic. But man, that early, formative, intense experience, apparently it can 
carve a groove in you. You can imprint on that shit hard, which is where I think porn featuring ostensibly straight guys doing objectively gay things for many gay men works. I don't think that's a desire for straight men or a desire about forcing ourselves on straight men. I think it's about a desire to return to a time in our own lives when we ourselves were straight men. The time in our lives before we could risk getting caught watching the Golden Globes. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast and on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more questions and more guests. Michael Hobbs from HuffPo and You're Wrong About joins me to have a long conversation, a deep dive into the subject of sex trafficking. All that coming up on today's show. Okay, Dan. I'm a bi, non-monogamous woman in my 30s. I live in Europe and I have a problem. I have started a job where I have a decent salary and I am looking to upgrade my sex toy collection. And in particular, I'm looking for nice dildos, you know, proper silicone, ideally like hand poured with like maybe a marbling effect. I don't know, something like that. So I'm going to women-owned, queer-friendly, independent sex shops. I've been into a few in different countries here. And the problem I'm coming across is that all of their dildos are so fucking small. Like, sure, there are women who have vaginas that are smaller than mine, who want smaller dildos. I get that. I totally understand that. I fuck some of those women. And you know what? Fair dues. We should all have the thing that we need. My question is, why am I coming in at like the top end of the dildo selection? Like I went into one in London, I had to buy the biggest dildo they had just to get one that was equivalent to the one I already had. There were no bigger options. Um, and I'm actually looking for a slightly smaller one now and I'm really struggling. Um, I went into one of these sex shops, say a month ago, and I looked at all of their options, most of which were vibrating as well as, you know, just dildos. And they were all beautiful and they all felt great, but they were all too small for me. And at the end of the demonstration, I said to the woman, do you have anything bigger? And she just looked at me. She gave me proper side eye and was like, but these are USB rechargeable. And that's not enough, Dan. That's not enough. I need something with more than 1.5 inches of diameter and quite frankly, it's really hard to find. Why is that? Are the majority of women just using much smaller dildos than me? Or is there some kind of like, oh no, we don't want big dildos movement? Really, what is that? You know, I've noticed this too. I've been to a few sex-positive, women-owned, feminist sex toy shops, and they have lovely selections of sex toys. I've purchased a lot of sex toys in these shops. But often the dildos top out before I'm used to seeing dildos top out because my frame of reference usually is a gay sex toy shop. You might want to get to Mr. S. Leather. You might want to go to Oxballs. You might want to go to some stores that are progressive, that are queer-owned, that cater to the gay male community. You can search dildos by size at oxballs.com, and they range from beginner to average Joe to large to huge to holy shit. There tend to be, I think, when it comes to penetrative sex toys, more overachievers. 
in gay land than in perhaps lesbian feminist owned straight land. And while I don't think there's a conspiracy to downsize in the dildo apartment and feminist women owned sex toy shops, most of them are going to stock what sells and most people, most female bodied people aren't looking for giant ass sex toys. If you are looking for larger than average sex toys, you want to go where the people who shop the holy shit category at oxballs.com shop, which is oxballs.com or Mr. S Leather or one of the other wonderful queer progressive fetish sex toy shops out there online. Do a little digging. You'll find what you need. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a cishet white dude from the Midwest, and I've been sober for four years. It's not a big deal. I just don't like hangovers. Um, I had a question about drinking and consent. Uh, I realize sometimes people need one or two drinks to kind of get loose or in the mood, and um, I don't think I can hook up with them then because I'm not sure uh, how that works from a consent angle. Like, obviously, I'm sober. I shouldn't hook up with people who are drunk, but um, say I were in a long-term relationship and I had a partner that needed a few drinks to get going, uh, would that be okay then? I'm really confused about this because, like, obviously it's a very dicey situation and um, I don't want to be evil. There's a lot to worry about in the world right now. Worrying about whether it's ethical or consensual for you to sleep with someone you're in a long-term relationship with, a committed relationship with, after they've had a couple of drinks, not on the list of things that you need to worry about. I also think as a sober person, you're safe going home and having sex with someone that you know to have had just one or just two drinks. There is a difference between a little social lubrication and someone being wasted past the point where they can give meaningful consent. And perhaps that line is blurry and there are some people out there who can knock back five drinks and seem like they've only had one or two and some people black out when they drink too much and they appear to be walking and talking and consenting and they are not conscious and will wake up the next day not knowing what happened to them. You can avoid those situations. You can avoid the people who've had six or seven drinks or you can avoid the people who may be blacked out by only sleeping with the person who's had one or two drinks and you know for certain it's just been one or two because you've been with them the whole night. You saw the one or two drinks tops happen. Even if they're a stranger, even if you just met that night, you met on a dating app, you went out for two drinks, you know they've just had two, you're fine. And in a long-term relationship, if you're with somebody who needs to have or wants to have or enjoys sex more easily, if they do have a couple of glasses of wine before you get going, that is also fine. Not something you need to worry about. You know, people put it out there. It is often asserted that if anyone's had any inebriating substance, any mind-altering substance, any at all, even a drop, even a puff, that they can't consent. And that's just really kind of crazy talk because that makes the vast and overwhelming majority of sex that happens on any given night sexual assault or rape. Most people out there hooking up for the first time or the second or third time or the 300th time with their committed partner, most people on any given Saturday night have had a couple of drinks or a little bit of pot. And it's just crazy talk to assert that all of that consensual sex in the context of a puff or two of pot or a couple of drinks is sexual assault or non-consensual and therefore rape 
And what if both people have both had a couple of drinks? I guess it's right both directions. No, that, that's just crazy. The problem, of course, is there are predatory people out there who will go out and target those who are drunk, those who are impaired, those whose judgment is impaired by other substances other than alcohol to get into their pants, to get laid, to manipulate them, to literally sexually assault or rape them. And we have to make a distinction between the actions of the predator who takes advantage and the ability of the person who can have one or two drinks to still meaningfully consent to sex with someone that they want to have sex with. And rounding everyone who's had one or two drinks down to incapacitated and rounding everyone who sleeps with anyone who's had one or two drinks up to predator isn't helpful, doesn't help us make the distinctions we need to make. It is Savage and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a 26-year-old um, East Coaster. I just got out of a 10-year marriage. Long story short, he asked me for the divorce. It ended okay, and we're still petty fighting. But I have a question about hooking up with women. So I met this guy on Tinder. We were texting, and he was like, hey, so I saw on your profile that you're bi. I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, cool. I really want you to meet my ex-wife. Maybe we could have a threesome. I was like, okay. So he gives me the number for his ex-wife. We start texting. She's like, hey, come meet me uh, by the lake. We'll smoke a joint. We'll just relax and, like, get to know each other. So I do that. So here's my problem. Really like her. A lot. We like vibed well. There's like a little bit of sexual energy there. She's fucking beautiful. Um, but here's the thing. Do I want to get in the middle of whatever their relationship is? Because she's telling me that she still wants to be married to him. And he's telling me that she's his ex-wife. And she's the word husband quite a lot. So... What is my best way to navigate this? I just don't want to get in the middle of some, I don't know, uh, drama. The best way to navigate this is to run. I don't know if that's a setting on Google Maps, but just enter, run, and then fucking run. There's just no way to game this scenario out. Your ongoing or future involvement with this woman Without drama happening, she is still in love with her husband and wants to be with her husband. And her husband is out there setting her up on dates with women. What the fuck is going on? Something is up. I don't know what the fuck it is, but they're clearly either playing a game and fucking with and toying with you and, and other bi women out there on the Internet, on the dating apps, or they're fucking with each other. And you are just a prop in that game. Either way, don't stick around long enough to find out which it is. Whether they're fucking with your head or fucking with each other's heads and you're just the implement. Run, run, run. Hi, Dan. I am a queer woman on the West Coast. And my question is about mental illness. Um, my best friend is unmedicated, bipolar, and has been doing very, very risky sexual 
and another behavior for this past year, pretty much. And I've been there for her. I've tried to give her advice and I can, but she's so unreceptive to it. She feels like I'm parenting her. I'm shaming her. You know, she goes and does risky behavior with men, goes to meet them at hotels. She's had um, some sexual assault experience this year as well. You know, basically just putting herself in all this danger, not really caring about her you know, her well-being and, and I'm left sort of to pick up the pieces after she does something really risky and it ends up badly. So, uh, she called me the other day, um, while she was coming back from a sugar daddy and she told me she wasn't going to go up to his place for their first meeting. And she did, she fucked him and then she left drunk. And so she drove, she was driving home drunk while she called me. And so I was furious. I tried to get her to pull over, tried to get her to, you know, stop driving and she wouldn't. And I deal with my own mental health. And so I, you know, I, I feel like I should have set up a boundary, but I just don't know what to do. I'm worried about her safety. I'm worried about the safety of other people at this point now. And um, we had a big blow up. She doesn't want to talk to me. And I just, I really don't know what to do. So any advice would be great. Should I just butt out and like let her figure it out? What should I do, Dan? Based on the fact that you two had a big blow up, I'm going to infer that you told her that you were sick of this, that you confronted her about the risk-taking behavior, about the danger she's placing herself in, about the necessity for her to get in treatment and get back on meds to treat her bipolar disorder, and that she got angry and blew up at you and now isn't speaking to you. Well, maybe that's a relief for her not to be speaking with you right now. Maybe you don't have to play the role in her manic episodes that you've been playing where you're there to pick up the pieces where you're there to function as a net. When you confronted her, she realized that you didn't want to be used like this anymore. Maybe that's what you told her. And so she has pulled away from you. She on her own is going to have to learn to take care of herself. She on her own is going to have to hit bottom and realize that she needs to get back in treatment and she needs to get back on medication to treat her bipolar disorder. And one of the things that may help her realize that is losing some of her support system, which, you know, a support system is wonderful and we all want to be supportive friends, but there comes a point where our support can really become enabling where the person, some part of their big brain or their reptile brain is counting on us to help them pick up the pieces, which enables them to take these risks because they're assuring themselves that however bad it gets, however big the jam I get myself into, by acting out in this way, by taking the sorts of risks your friend has been taking, the cavalry is going to come charging in. Well, you told her. I, I think you told her. And if you didn't tell her this, you can tell her this in an email. You told her that you don't want to play the role of the cavalry anymore. And she can't count on or use you in the way that she's been counting on or using you. And she needs to get help. That was the right thing to do. Follow that up by contacting other people in her life who can intervene. Call her parents. Call her other friends. Stage an intervention if possible. If she was seeing a psychiatrist and she had been medicated in the past, contact her psychiatrist. Make an appointment for her. And enlist the help of friends and family to implore her to show up at that appointment. Somebody 
in the throes of unmedicated bipolar has manic episodes. They'll often act out sexually during those manic episodes. But the manic episodes tend to be interspersed with depressive episodes. And you may not be able to convince her in a manic episode to get the help that she needs. But if you time this right and you reach out to her during a depressive episode, you might be able to. And if not you, her family might be able to convince her to get the help that she so clearly needs. Hey, Dan and Camilia. I'm 30 years old. Uh, well, I have a two-year relationship with a really caring and loving man. But I moved to New Zealand for two years, two months ago. And he will be joining me in two more months. So we are struggling with our sex life. We were being apart. So I don't know. I keep sending photos to him, like sexy photos in my underwear since day one. And he only answered to me, oh, you are so pretty. And just that. He don't start any playing and everything. I don't know how we can keep our sexual connection. Because for me, it's really, really important. For me, sex is more important than love. And for him, love is more important than sex. But I can have love from my friends and family. So for him, I really need, need this really deep uh, sexual connection. I'm scared that I can. I will start looking here to an from another person. So what can you tell me about that? What can I tell him for he start playing with me in some way? Because I really don't want to lose that thing we have. Two months, you say he'll be joining you. In two months, that's eight weeks. That's not an impossibly long time to just masturbate about someone. If you require some assistance from him, if you require some participation, some active participation, have a conversation with him about what he's comfortable with. You say you sent him some sexy pictures. There are people out there in the world who are comfortable taking sexy pictures of themselves and blasting those out to their intimates. Not everybody is as comfortable taking sexy pictures. Not everybody isn't as unselfconscious in front of a camera or a cell phone, selfie machine as you are. And your partner might not be comfortable reciprocating photo-wise, but maybe he's comfortable sending you strings of dirty texts, letting you know when he's thinking of you and what he's thinking about you at those times that he's thinking of you. Or maybe it's email exchange, or maybe it's jumping on Skype or FaceTime and chatting with you while you masturbate and having that kind of old-fashioned phone sex that might work for him. But there are folks out there who aren't into any of that. And it doesn't mean you can't have an ongoing sexual relationship with them. You can. And again, it's only two months. You're talking about eight weeks. If your feelings for him, if your attraction to him is so fragile that it couldn't survive eight weeks in the desert, eight weeks wandering in the desert of no sects, I would argue that it's not much of a sexual connection to begin with. If it were two years and he couldn't give you anything, if you guys were going to be apart for two years and he couldn't sex, he couldn't send you dirty text messages, he wouldn't send you photographs, he wouldn't even enthuse at you about the photographs that you were sending him, I would jump down his throat. I would tell him to get outside his comfort zone and make more of an effort to grow in a way so that he can provide you with the, from afar, sexual 
contact, sexual intimacy, interaction that, that, that you need to feel satisfied and connected. But I'm less inclined to say that to him if we're just talking about two months. You can pound it out for two months. And then you can see when he gets there that the sexual connection is still there. And it most likely will be so long as you aren't stewing in resentment. Over the eight weeks that you were forced to think about him and masturbate without him letting you know he was thinking about you at the exact same times and in the exact same ways. Hi, Dan. I am a gay, cisgendered man with a less than accepting family that up until recently was getting better in that regard until my sister got engaged. A couple of years back, I encouraged her to go on a date with a bisexual guy who had asked her out. She had always been an ally, but after she started dating this guy, slowly she started to make jokes about me being a degenerate. Then one day it ceased to be so jocular and in a heated discussion, she said, we'll never agree because I'm moral and you're a degenerate. We reconciled, but it became clear that this was a line of thinking coming from her boyfriend, who was increasingly drifting to the alt-right. I couldn't tell how far he had gone or how much my sister had changed. This was all well in the past when they got engaged, and my sister asked me to be her man of honor. I said yes. But in the months since, as I've gotten to know her fiancé more, it's clear that he has gone full Neil Leonopolis, Groper Army alt-right. He's become, or always was, deeply racist. And now my sister is too. She thought it perfectly fine to make a joke about black people being monkeys. I called her out and told her she had become a racist asshole. And since then, she and her fiancé have espoused increasingly anti-LGBT thoughts about how trans people are destroying good American culture and community, just like the immigrants and the globalists. My sister strangely still supports me personally. She wants to see me happily married to a man, but this to her is a good alternative to me sleeping around. She doesn't like queerness and thinks it is dangerous. I'm thinking of stepping down from being her man of honor. But it isn't clear to me if I should if I should not attend the wedding. I want to show her and my family the kind of love and support, despite fundamental disagreements, that I want to receive from them if I ever get married. Should I be her man of honor? Should I even attend her wedding? What should I do, Dan? Send a toaster. Send a broken toaster. If you don't have a broken toaster, buy a toaster, break it. Okay. Um, why, why are you going to the wedding of someone who tells you you're a degenerate? Setting aside the, the racism, setting aside the alt-right conspiracy theories, setting aside the fascism and the piece of shit your sister's marrying and the piece of shit your sister's become, why are you going to – why would you be standing up at her wedding, much less going to it? I guess – I kind of just keep wanting to believe that it's more, more jocular than it is. Mm-hmm. I really, I really want to believe that it's, it's in good fun, even if it is a kind of just an old timey slur. It just degenerate. It's hard to recontextualize it. Yeah, it, it is. And, and the fact that she's told, she's basically giving you St. Paul's advice to straight people, which is it's better to marry than burn. Uh, and sometimes there's debates about whether he meant burn in hell or burn in lust. But, you know, ideally Christians 2000 years ago were, you know, Jesus Christ was coming back imminently. And so you weren't supposed to get married or distract yourself with earthly things like fucking your wife or fucking your husband. But if you couldn't concentrate, uh, better to marry than burn, better to marry than fornicate. And that's basically her advice for you, that she'd rather you marry one guy and have sex with that one guy and do your degeneracy with that one guy 
than be young and gay and single and super degenerate or degenerating around. She sounds like such a hateful bigot. And, I, and I'm sorry, hate like elections has consequences. It's difficult to separate out, I guess, for me, the, because she used to be different. She used to be an ally. She used to, I don't know, while we never talked about my sex life or romantic life deeply before, there was never any of this. And so, well, there is this now. And it it seems to me that at the very least you owe yourself a conversation with her about why she would even want you at your her wedding if she feels this way about you to determine to your satisfaction, I guess, how deep these feelings go. Mm-hmm. And if you're a listener to the show, and I assume you are because you didn't just cold call me, uh, that <laughs> advice about your only leverage over your family is your presence as an adult doesn't just apply to bigoted parents. Mm-hmm. And your sister's a bigot. And, and the, the rule as an adult has to be if someone can't love and respect you, they don't deserve you. They don't deserve your time. They don't even deserve your broken fucking toaster. Oh, I do like the idea of sending a broken toaster, but I, I can't argue with any of that. I guess it's just it's a confirmation of a change in her that I don't want to be real. And if I act, if we act appropriately, it makes it much more real. Right. There has been a rupture in your relationship and she is the author of it. Not you. Her bigotry. Yeah. And her throwing her lot in with this alt-right asshole and hewing to this ideology that is really destroying the country and the world. We have to take sides here. And sometimes in, you know, in an existential crisis conflict like this, you do have to take sides against your family if they're on the wrong side and your sister's on the wrong mm-hmm. side. And I think you can speak to her. You can confront her with this, but you have to acknowledge the facts on the ground as they exist. You have to acknowledge the rupture that she is the author of. Mm-hmm. She has estranged herself from you. Yeah. I definitely need to remind myself of that. It's definitely, there's a sense of like, because I know what the back with. It's like, why are you abandoning us? You are throwing us away for a bunch of random gay sex. And yeah, no. Standing up yeah, to no. difficult. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, being gay isn't just, you know, a pile of butt fucking off in a corner somewhere. Being gay is about <laughs> love and things that transcend just the butt fucking. The butt fucking is part of it. And you it's know, a great part of anal, it, but it's, it's a great part of it. it. If you're not all gay men are into anal, we don't want to like make the gay guys 25% or so out there who aren't into anal feel bad about themselves. But the sex is no more all gay is about than the sex is all straight is about. And a straight person who refuses to acknowledge that and can't see it or could see it and now doesn't is basically saying they don't see you as human. Ask your sister why she wants non-humans at her wedding. Ask yourself why you would go. And if it's to keep the peace with the you know, extended family, if it's in hopes that she may one day come around, if you're the bigger person, okay, I can see that. I, I can see why you might go grin, bear it, not be the best fucking man at the wedding of somebody who doesn't think you should have one or you should only have mm-hmm. one to shut your dating life down. Yeah. She, she told me I could bring a date, but only – if I was dating one person and it had been for at least six months. So she's trying to literally, she's trying to control that. And it's, I guess we didn't even think about that before. Bring three guys (laughs) and then have an awesome four way. 
at the That's Howard Johnson's or whatever the hotel is nearest where bigots get married these days. Are your parents alive? They are. Are they going? Are they distressed? Are they worried about her? Are they on her side? They see the racism as a problem. They're upset about it, but they're about as upset about her being racist as they are about me being gay. Um, That's a problem, too. <laughs> they're evangelicals. and Yeah. E- evangelicals <laughs> lined up behind this racist precedent because yeah. evangelical Protestantism is really a racist movement. Yeah. And my parents, for their, despite their many issues, are not racist and they hate racism. And I've heard my father yell and scream about how he thinks Trump is an awful, awful racist person. And so at the very least, there's that. But they don't they don't see it as big of a problem. They don't see it as fundamentally hurting other people. They just see it as an internal prejudice that she hopes she, that they hope she gets over. Well, I think she's maybe she's likely to ask herself some penetrating questions and get the fuck over it or begin to work through it and go over it if half her family doesn't show up at her fucking wedding because she's being an obnoxious bigot. Yeah. Well, I'm likely the only one who won't show up, but at the very least, it's her her requested man of honor turned her down. So hopefully that carries some weight. And you know what? Send her a letter explaining why you can't be there. And if she comes around, she will know that that was the right thing for you to do at that time. And if she never comes around, you don't ever have to talk to her again. And she's out of your life. You don't have to have a relationship with this person who has chosen bigotry, really actively chosen yeah. bigotry. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's weird. It got my parents who firmly believe I'm going to hell. Don't bring it up. And they're willing to sit and have polite conversation with me and not call me a degenerate to my face. They at so least sorry. are polite. How far away is your family? Were you traveling for this wedding? Um, yeah, it, the wedding is in Atlanta and I live up in Rochester. Don't budge. Please don't get on a bus or a train or a plane. Okay. I send a toaster. I'll send a toaster. Broken. I'm a broken record now telling you to send a broken toaster. <laughs> send a broken toaster, even if you have to break okay. it yourself. I, I'm so sorry. You know, we're both kind of laughing uh, about this and enjoying the conversation. But we have to recognize that, you know, what's been done to you by your family is very deeply traumatic. And as always, I want to cite that brilliant Armistead Maupin quote that there's your biological family and there's your logical family. And if we're lucky, there's a lot of overlap. But sometimes we're not lucky and we have to build our logical family for ourselves, even if that means unloading our biological family in the process. So my heart does go out to you. Thank you. Uh, Good luck to you. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a 20-year-old bisexual female, and my boyfriend is seven years older than me. For the last couple of months, we have had discussions about having kids and forming a sort of family, but as of right now, that may seem like a good idea in the future for me. It's just not something that I can um, imagine. I am really focused on my career and um, making sure that I have a home and financial security and no student debt. But while we have sex, of course, I have 
a kind of fetish of getting pregnant. So during intercourse, I think that it's super hot and sexy for me to say like, yes, I want to get pregnant. Please come in me. And the problem is that I know he wants to have a family, but that's not something I want in the future or in the near future anytime soon. But it is something that I fetishize. So the problem that I'm considering right now is if it's fair for me to include that in our sex life because I know he wants it, or am I taking advantage because I fetishize it and I know that's something that he wants to have? I just want your opinion on if this is something that we can work out or if it's something that I should stop doing so he can stop, you know, expecting a family from me because that is absolutely not what I want. There are people out there who are turned on by the thought of getting pregnant, who are aroused by that. And obviously, why wouldn't there be some people who were aroused by that considering what sex does? And in some cases, but not all, sex is kind of for of course, there are people who eroticize impregnation, pregnancy. There are gay guys out there who are aroused by getting knocked up. There's gay pregnancy fetish porn where boys knock up other boys. It is perfectly understandable. Uh, it's pretty low and slow and over the plate for you to have this kind of a, a, a kink or fetish for the you know power of sexual intercourse, his amazing scene, and what could happen. But – when you're less aroused, when you're not turned on, what you absolutely positively do not want to have happen yet. You're only 20 years old. You're in school. You want to get out of school without debt. You want to find a place to live where you feel secure. There's a lot of things you want to line up before you get pregnant. Make that clear to your boyfriend that if this happens, it will happen on your timeline. And it's not time. You're not ready. That said, you're certainly aroused by the thought of getting knocked up and you like to discuss that during sex as dirty talk. Just put brackets around it. Say to your boyfriend, just so we're clear, what I say during sex, what I fantasize about during sex isn't what I want right now. And you're not the only person in the world who has to make that kind of statement, who has to clarify themselves and you don't have to feel self-conscious about this there are millions of people out there who fantasize about and dirty talk with their partners during sex about things they don't actually want to happen yet or ever people out there who fantasize with their partners about getting slave tattooed across their forehead they don't actually want that to happen it would complicate their job working as a hostess at the spaghetti factory. And so they don't actually want it, but they like to fantasize about it. And when they've come, it doesn't turn them on anymore. The thought of it. And I assume it's the same thing for you. When the sex is over, the thought of being knocked up or pregnant inconveniently at age 20 when you're still in school, not a turn on. This isn't a heavy lift that you're asking of your partner for him to wrap his head around what so many other people with so many other partners and talking about so many other kinds of kinks, but even talking about this kink itself, so many other people have already managed to wrap their heads around. You aren't teasing him. You aren't misleading him. You aren't taking advantage of his desire to have a baby with you now. 
You're only throwing yourself in the moment into what turns you on with a clear understanding because you've made it perfectly and abundantly clear to your partner that this isn't something that you really, really want. Not now, maybe not ever. Hi, Dan and crew. I'm just sitting here and I'm so ashamed of myself and I really just would like to hear your opinion. I have a guy friend that I've honestly had feelings for for about a decade now. I'm 24. So this has been going on for like 10 years since I've been a teenager. And I've told him in the past that I had feelings for him. And he told me he just sees me as a friend. And we went years without seeing each other. We reconnected. And I have had relationships and have been pretty good at suppressing my feelings for him. But recently I got out of a relationship and my feelings for him are coming back again. And... I found myself telling him we should catch up and get drinks and I'm now realizing that I basically was planning on getting him drunk. I don't know what I was planning to happen after that, but I'm just realizing how disgusting of me that is. And if it was a guy doing that to a girl, like how much more judged it would be. And I just don't want to be this person anymore. I don't want to be in this like unreciprocated quote unquote platonic friendship. I don't know if I should just tell him how I've been dishonest and that I see him as more than a friend and I think we shouldn't see each other anymore. Or should I just, you know, cancel the plans we have and grow apart from him and not tell him how I feel and just spare us both the awkwardness? I feel like I need closure, but I also have pride and I think it's so hard to admit to him how I feel. There's a hook you need to let yourself off. You indict yourself for being dishonest with this guy. Years after you told him you had a crush on him and he told you he didn't feel about you the way you felt about him and you guys drifted apart, exited each other's lives, you re-entered each other's lives. He knows that it was highly likely when you re-entered his life, when you two both chose to reconnect, that you might still have romantic feelings for him, that you might still be attracted to him. So you weren't actively dishonest unless you said when you reconnected, I am no longer attracted to you. I no longer like you in that way. Let's be friends. Unless you said something that was actively dishonest, you could have, would have, should have known that it was highly likely that you might still be nursing thwarted romantic feelings for him and that you'd already heard him say no and you respected that no and exited his life. And so he knows you can hear no and there are a lot of people out there in the world who are friends with people they had a crush on briefly or might still you know, be nursing a crush on years later and they managed to make those friendships work. So it wasn't necessarily devious or nefarious of him to reestablish the relationship with you. All that said, if having this guy in your life, if reconnecting with this guy has you contemplating doing something that you know to be unethical, taking him out, getting him drunk in the hopes of getting into his pants – or just is making you miserable, disconnect from this guy, which is what you know you need to do. And you can do that by just making yourself unavailable, not setting yourself up for rejection again. If you don't want to face that specific articulated rejection again, just drift out of his life. Or you can say to him, say the honest thing, look, it's just too painful to have you in my life. It, it, being friends doesn't work because I don't have friendly feelings for you. I have or complicated romantic feelings for you and you don't reciprocate and it's just painful. You can be that blunt and that honest. 
I don't want to give you false hopes. I don't want to encourage you to do that in the hopes that he will turn around and say he feels differently about you. But it was 10 years ago. You were 14 years old or close to it when you told him that you had feelings for him. And who knows, maybe now that you're 24, 25 years old, he might feel differently about you. Maybe that's why he reconnected. And you taking the risk of being rejected by telling him, look, I can't be friends. Friends isn't how I feel about you. He may hear that and say, okay, let's not be friends. I don't want to be in your life if it causes you pain. There is a tiny infinitesimal chance that he may say, my feelings for you have changed. And that's part of the reason why I sought you out again and reentered your life. But I didn't want to presume that you were still interested in me. Who knows? People are, are so terrified of rejection. You know, if you drift out of his life, you've rejected yourself on his behalf without consulting him. If you risk telling him that you still have these feelings for him, allowing for, you know, the 99.99% certainty that he still doesn't feel about you the way you feel about him, but also allowing for the 0.01% possibility that his feelings might have changed over the last decade as you went from 14 to 24, risking rejection may get you in the end and get you ethically what you wanted from him all along. So I'm sorry to kick this back into your court, to lob the ball back over the fence to you. You have to decide for yourself which is the way out. Telling him the truth on your way out with the possible benefit that he feels differently now, although that's a long shot, or just drifting out of his life and sparing yourself the likelihood, if not certainty, of him rejecting you again. But cancel the drinks. Don't put yourself in a situation where you are tempted to do something you know is wrong. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to do something we usually don't do in the middle of the show. I am going to read a tweet. Tiffany tweeted at me, cannot believe that fake Dan Savage called human trafficking a, quote, meaningless label people will slap on anything. Yeah. It is real and happening to millions, coerced into various kinds of labor. Disagreeing with one charge does not make the term meaningless. Shame on the Savage Lovecast. Dan is usually so good about doing his research and bringing on an expert or just admitting that he doesn't know what he's talking about. All right, I am bringing on an expert to make it up to <laughs> Tiffany Michael Hobbs reporter for Huffington Post, co-host of the You're Wrong About podcast. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the success of You're Wrong About, recently named one of Time Magazine's best podcasts of 2019. Yes, after a podcast that was much better than ours, so I agreed with the ranking. is tremendous. <laughs> I've been pushing it and recommending it since the second episode. Uh, oh, yeah. You and Sarah Marshall have such a great rapport. And you do uh, amazing work. Anyone out there who's not already listening to You're Wrong About, which, how would you describe it? What is it that you do? You revisit 20, 30-year-old news stories mm -hmm. uh, and pick them apart and walk us through what the media got wrong, what the culture got wrong, and what we misremember about those events and yeah. those people. Yeah, we try to circle back to people and events that have sort of taken this place in the public imagination that isn't true. So we talk about Tanya Harding and Anita Hill and the Challenger explosion and Stonewall and all these things that we all kind of have this vague sense of how they happened. But in every single case, they happened completely differently or much more complicatedly than we thought. And a recent episode, terrific episode, about trafficking. Yes. Which isn't which outside your usual wheelhouse. It's not yeah. Tammy Faye Baker. It's not Tanya Harding. And the Tanya Harding two-parter is required listening, I think, for everybody. Yes. Um, but you did a whole episode on trafficking. Yes. Now, when I brought it up on my show a couple weeks ago, there was a guy, a guy in New Orleans, 
who tricked some women from basically a gig economy babysitting app yeah. into babysitting his 18-year-old profoundly disabled younger brother who would need his diapers changed. Turns out there was no profoundly disabled younger brother. There was just the guy online soliciting for someone to change the diapers because he's into it. These women complained when they noticed he was visibly aroused. He was arrested. He was charged with some shit, but also charged with 10 counts of human trafficking, human trafficking yeah. even though it didn't seem that he trafficked anybody. And this is what yeah. I was talking about during my rant was this label trafficking gets slapped on now everything that we don't like. An yes. overcooked burger is a trafficked burger. <laughs> this guy who didn't import anybody, didn't kidnap anybody, didn't hold anybody against their will. But he paid them. Paid them. It was a, it was a, it was a normal transaction. Got some diapers changed under false pretenses yeah. uh, in a circumstance that most of these women wouldn't have agreed to going in, mm -hmm. uh, but charged with human trafficking. Can you talk about that trafficking creep? His case is actually a really great metaphor for what the term trafficking has become in that what he did is behavior that most of us feel pretty uncomfortable with ethically. Like it's not great, right? You wouldn't say like he's innocent, he's perfectly fine. But it's also very clearly not human trafficking, right? What is human trafficking? <laughs> well, what is the original definition of human trafficking? So all of the we I asked you in a nation founded basically <laughs> on human trafficking. Yes. I mean, I think all of the misunderstandings and all of the scamminess around human trafficking comes from the huge gulf between what most people think of when you say trafficking and the legal definition of trafficking. So when you say human trafficking to most people, they think of the Liam Neeson movie, right? They think of daughters in the suburbs being kidnapped, being bound, taken across state lines, taken to different countries, forced into sex work. They're chained to radiators. They're trapped in hotels. The worst kind of thing you can imagine. That's what people think of. And that basically – you can't say that it doesn't happen because there are real victims. They're extremely rare. But that – that version of human trafficking essentially doesn't happen. It's very similar to the stranger danger panic of the 1980s where we heard numbers of 1.2 million children abducted every year, which was like 10% of all children in the country at the time. And then it turned out that there were 105 actual stranger danger abductions every year. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the same idea now. So it doesn't never happen, but it happens very, very rarely. Yes. And, and yet yeah. there is this panic about it. Yes. And so that's the sort of the, the mythical definition, the sort of definition that we think of when we see those posters at the airport, those abysmal posters. The actual legal definition encompasses all kinds of behaviors that are like the guy in Louisiana did where it's a little skeezy or maybe it's not even skeezy at all, but it's been labeled trafficking. So one of the numbers that goes around that 40 million people worldwide are victims of trafficking. I think that's where this tweet comes from, that there are millions of people who are victims of trafficking. That number includes 15 million people who are in arranged marriages. So every single person who's in an arranged marriage is a trafficking victim. And that's one of those things that like, again, you like, I don't love it, but is that people being kidnapped and taken against their will? Uh, not really, right? And it also includes every single person who is in a foreign country and working to pay off any debt of any kind. So if you are from Kenya, you move to the United States, get a guest worker visa, you borrow $1,000 for your plane ticket, you pay it back when you're working as a nanny in the United States, you're a trafficking victim. They don't have to steal money from you. They don't have to give you punitive interest rates. They don't have to lie to you. That's all it takes, paying back a debt, right? And that's another thing where are there really terrible recruitment practices? Yes. Are there really grave exploitation forms that happen for people in that situation? Yes. But it's odd to conflate every single person working to pay off any debt of any kind with this sort of worst thing we can imagine 
trap-bound modern slavery sort of stereotype. Or slapping the word on anything that we don't like or that makes us uncomfortable. Exactly. seems to be the case in New Orleans, where can you walk us through the legal definition of trafficking in New Orleans, which is so impossibly broad yes. that there are probably people listening to this podcast who are accidentally trafficking people yes. right now. So in 2017, Louisiana passed a law that says that getting any form of service of any kind through fraud is human trafficking. So if I tell someone that I have a broken ankle and could they please bust my table in the cafe and they do it, I have trafficked them if I do that in New Orleans. Yes, terrible trafficker. (laughs) And, you know, we've seen this with other – we've seen this in other places too, right? That the term trafficking, when it comes to sex work, the term trafficking, anyone who is under 18 and engages in sex work is trafficked. 100% of people. That Coercion doesn't matter. Movement doesn't matter. They don't have to be taken from one place to another. They can completely choose it of their own volition. They can be homeless and doing it as a form of survival. Doesn't matter. All of those complexities get collapsed down into the term trafficking. Mm-hmm. And so what we've seen in state after state... And are they included in that 40 million number? Yes. Yes. So people who are engaged in what's called survival prostitution... Yes. Uh, ...who may not be working with anyone, working with yeah. the pimp who may be putting on their own sort of cryptic line on ad because mm-hmm. they're cryptic now, that person is a trafficking victim even though yes. they're yes. a solo operator with their own shingle out and underage and it's not okay and people who are underage shouldn't be doing prostitution. But if you want to prevent people from engaging in survival prostitution, hey, how about a safety net? Yeah. How about good public housing? How about yeah. access to health care, including mental health care? Yeah. You could almost end trafficking by ending homelessness. I mean, that's a huge part of the underage Sex worker population is homeless people. Put those kids in homes, give them six months, a year free, no questions asked, and like the sex trafficking problem is gone, essentially, or most of it. And so, you know, what a lot of states... Well, the underage sex trafficking the problem. underage so problem, So long as yes. you define sex trafficking as anybody underage, or yes. define trafficking to mean that anyone underage is, is trafficked, is yes. a victim of trafficking, even if yeah. they're not working with anyone but themselves. And it's also created this really horrific situation where anytime there's one of these busts, you hear all the time about these raids, they're busting up sex trafficking rings... What the cops are often doing in these cases is they're looking for one or two underage sex workers because then they can charge every single person around them with facilitating sex trafficking. So I interviewed somebody who was the lawyer for a 19-year-old sex worker, also in Louisiana, who is a convicted trafficker. She's on the sex offender registry for the rest of her life for driving one of her friends, also a sex worker, across state lines. She's 19. Her fellow sex worker was 17. So she is facilitating sex trafficking, she's a trafficker. And so you see this all over the place that there's this eureka moment. As soon as the cops can find one underage sex worker. And the 17-year-old wasn't working for the 19-year-old. These were just two teenagers very close in age doing what they needed to do to survive and supporting each other. Yes. And exactly that, supporting each other, is now facilitation. So if you're a sex worker, you're 21, a 17-year-old sex worker comes to you and says, I've been seeing clients. I don't feel super safe. And you advise them, hey, you know, there's this motel where it's safer than doing it outside. It's it's better. The guy kind of knows what's going on. Pay him 20 bucks. Not only is the sort of the owner of that motel now a trafficker, but the person who gave you advice on how to stay safe is also a trafficker because they're facilitating underage trafficking. So you have cases where people's, you know, people's roommates, people's boyfriends, th- this entire circle around a single underage sex worker gets busted for trafficking whether or not they know that person is underage. Because 32 states have laws explicitly saying you cannot use I didn't know their age as a defense. Mm -hmm. So if you think she's 20, it turns out she's 17, you go to jail as an underage sex trafficker. You get charged with commercial sexual exploitation of a minor, even if you didn't know and even if all you were doing was trying to help her stay safe. 
circling back to Tiffany's complaint that I said trafficking is a meaningless label and she points out that there are millions of trafficking victims out there. Sounds like a lot of these millions and these stats that get thrown around aren't victims of trafficking as we understand trafficking. But there are people who are carried across state lines. There are people who are forced into doing labor basically against their will. Mm. But most of them are working in construction. Most of them are working as domestic Mm -hmm. servants. Most of them are working in restaurants, Mm -hmm. often people who don't speak English. And yet when we say trafficking victim, what we think of is someone who's been a 17-year-old girl who's been carried across straight lines, a la Liam Neeson's daughter and all those Liam Neeson movies, mm-hmm. and, and forced into sex work against their will. Why is so much of the focus when the vast majority of the victims of what might be legitimately called trafficking are not doing sex work? Why is the focus almost exclusively on the small handful of people who are trafficked for sex work? I think a lot of it is the NGO sector doesn't take seriously the effects of putting out all these messages about sex trafficking, sex trafficking, sex trafficking, all of the posters that you see in airports, what's the imagery on those posters? It's usually a girl. She's always white. She's often These are posters in airports would say, keep your eyes open. There could be a trafficking yeah. victim being yeah. dragged down the hallway here at Minneapolis International Airport. Yes. And they need you to intervene. Yes. Famously, Cindy McCain yeah. reported someone for trafficking, suspected them of trafficking, because it was some an adult of one race and a child of another, which is yeah. so fucking maddening because Cindy McCain – and John McCain adopted a child yeah. of another race. And Cindy McCain <laughs> sees a parent of a different race than their child and believes that this is a trafficking yeah. case and reports yeah. it. And also I call – there's two organizations in America that run trafficking hotlines. I called them both. Neither one of them could give me a single case of a child trafficked by a stranger through an airport. Again, this doesn't – I'm sure in the world it has happened – but, you know, I called the International Organization of Migration. I talked to smuggling experts. I talked to disaster relief experts. None of them could give me a single time that that has happened. Why are they ginning up all this fear? I think they're not taking seriously the unintended consequences. I think what's really interesting is a lot of these organizations, some of them aren't. There's a lot of Christian right organizations that are really cynical about this, and they're just trying to abolish prostitution. There's also some organizations that I think they have their head in the right place in that they acknowledge labor trafficking, way bigger problem, wage theft, way bigger problem, international, you know, people's getting smuggled over here, getting lied to, way bigger problem. But what they think is that putting this hotline out there is going to help those people with no negative side effects. So the people at Polaris, which is the organization that runs the main national trafficking hotline, they told me, oh, we know nobody's getting trafficked through airports. We know that. But we want our hotline to be out there. We just want people, you know, we want to raise awareness of our hotline number so that later on, if they see something, they can call the hotline. So basically they're thinking that if they present this false sort of image of what a trafficking victim is, the tween girl being dragged through an airport, that someone will see a person working in a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown in Manhattan who doesn't seem to be happy about it, who Mm -hmm. is much likelier to be a victim of trafficking and report that. That will trickle down basically to people who really need the help and they're completely ignoring the idea that we're all now deputized kind of to watch each other. Right. I mean, I was just hanging out with a sex worker that I was interviewing for this yesterday, and she said her brother, Catholic, is always saying, like, I think my neighbor is doing trafficking. I I see people coming in at his house and he's got he's up at late hour. And it's like maybe he's like a wedding DJ and he gets home late at night. Right. Like there's no evidence that there's any trafficking going on. But we're now sort of being trained to look for the specter that really doesn't exist or really doesn't exist in a way that we all need to be deputized to look for. Okay, so we're all being encouraged to panic about this thing. It's being misrepresented. Who the victims are is being being misrepresented. There may be some examples of the 
quote unquote classic sex trafficking victim, the yeah. image that we all have in Absolutely. our heads yeah. out there, but a tiny percentage of the total misrepresentation to, to cite them if you're going to talk about trafficking, the conflation, shifting the conversation for a second, the conflation of trafficking with prostitution. Mm-hmm. What was behind that really successful effort mm. to attach trafficking to all sex work, to, to mm. slap that label on all sex work, consensual sex work? Uh, because I have been writing a sex column for 30 years and doing this show for 13. You didn't hear the word trafficking all the time right. the way you do now. This right. was a conscious effort to inject this term into the discourse and conflate prostitution, uh, legal, you know, consensual sex work with human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Who was behind that? It basically was a coalition formed in the 1990s between neoconservatives, the Christian right, and second wave feminists who there had been this big battle against prostitution because it's a form of patriarchy, which I don't in principle disagree with, right? They wanted to ban prostitution. They wanted to ban pornography. And then in 1992, Bill Clinton gets elected and they think, uh, this isn't really going to go anywhere because he's not going to pass any of these anti-pornography, anti-prostitution laws. So they switched and started saying, well, it's not about prostitution. It's about saving people from slavery. It's about saving people from abuse. They're being taken here against their will. And Clinton fell for it. I mean, this is the classic sort of center-left thing of like, you know, let's take all these people in good faith, right? The Christian right, they really, they've always cared about sex workers. Obviously, we should trust them when they say they have their best interests at heart. (laughs) And so, you know, you look back in the 1990s and there's all these public statements from left-wing politicians saying we really need to crack down on trafficking and not realizing that that was a Trojan horse for all of these provisions that now make it harder to be a sex worker, extending sentences for people that, like this guy, who really weren't meaningfully doing trafficking – And they essentially just accepted this framing. And this framing is what has persisted then through the George W. Bush administration and now and then through the Obama administration. And now, of course, there's this big panic with Trump. But it's basically it's like a coalition of the right using this really cynically and the left using this earnestly and neither person sort of questioning the basic assumptions of is this helpful as a way to look at people that are coerced into sex work, it's actually because much the, more... the right was losing the argument about pornography and really yeah. also beginning to lose the argument about sex work. Yeah. So they partner up with lefties, certain lefties, who regard all sex workers as essentially victims to agree to basically rally around this new yeah. term to paint yeah. all sex workers yeah. as victims that needed to be rescued, needed to be saved, to delegitimize set, set this movement to decriminalize sex work and to de- mm-hmm. destigmatize sex work. Yeah. It was an effort to re-stigmatize or make sure the stigma yeah. stayed attached to consensual sex work. Yeah. And it was also a way of distracting from the places where real abuse takes place, right? That when you when you look at the accounts of actual victims, I spoke to a trafficking victim who her father was selling her for commercial sex when she was nine years old. These cases really do happen. Most of the cases that we know of are mostly familial abuse, right? Again, We've known this for years, that it's almost always someone you know. Most child abduction victims are abducted by a family member. Yes. And yet the conversation, the public conversation about child abduction is stranger danger. Yeah. And then, you know, when you look at people that sort of, you know, this quintessential notion of sort of the stable and the the, the game and, you know, the these women that are sort of get into the under the control of a pimp, this whole, I mean, it's a very racialized notion, but these kinds of things really do happen sometimes. Most of those are people that are from foster care they're homeless. They're coming from abused homes. They're running away from something. So the, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children that runs this trafficking hotline, 80% of their calls come from foster care facilities. And so 
they know this, but they don't really put this out there because they want to reinforce the stranger danger myth. But think about what the trafficking myth does for abusive parents. Think how great it is. If I'm an abusive foster parent and I'm abusing my kid and he runs away over and over again, all I have to do is call this hotline and say, I think he's been sex trafficked. And then all of a sudden the cops get really interested and they'll chase him down and they'll bring him back to me, right? Nobody's investigating why the same kids run away over and over again. And they're logged in the statistic every time. So you can have one kid that results in 10 different sex trafficking cases on one of these hotlines just because his parents, who might be assholes, have called in over and over again when he's fled from an abusive situation. We're not doing any distinction between actual people that really need help versus the the only form of victim we want to help, right? Which is the they're kidnapped by a monster. It's a stereotypical Liam Neeson definition. And we're ignoring there's a lot of kids that are suffering from forms of abuse that aren't commercial sex, right? That mm-hmm. if you call one of these trafficking hotlines and you say, I'm a 17-year-old girl, my boyfriend's 21, and he's talking me into sex that I'm not comfortable with, sorry, that's not trafficking. We're not going to help you. There's no trainings for that in high schools. Mm-hmm. There's no look for the warning signs. Teachers aren't asking, you know, teachers aren't being deputized to look for this. Nurses in hospitals, they're required to do all these trafficking trainings, but they're not looking for this kind of thing. So we're distracting. For abuse or exploitation, particularly within the family. Exactly. So it's like we're, again, just like Stranger Danger, we're distracting from the real problem and creating this myth that, again, you don't want to take anything away from people that have really suffered from this. But it's like at what at what cost is this framing and what does this framing really do for real victims? So was it inaccurate of me to say that the term trafficking, has the definition of it has been broadened to the point of meaninglessness? Not uselessness because the term is weaponized, so it's being used. But when you hear that someone has been charged with trafficking, this is what I mean by meaningless. As this kid in this man in New Orleans has been charged with 10 counts of trafficking, you can't know what anybody means by that. You can't know the specifics of the case. You can't make any logical – can't make any assumptions about what that might mean because it could mean literally anything. Right. And also, I mean, a really important aspect of this is that when you think about, you know, what has the trafficking panic achieved? Like, what's what's the harm, right, in sort of whipping up fears about this? When you talk to real victims, what they need, if they're being trafficked, if they identify as a trafficking victim, what they need is not for their trafficker to go away for the rest of his life. That's not going to help them. What they need is housing. They need income. They need training. They need stable homes. They need education. They need all of these things, which none of the anti-trafficking organizations are providing them with. Right. I mean, I looked at this report from Connecticut. They provided two units of housing to trafficking survivors last year. And it's like, okay, we're being told there's tens of thousands and you're providing two units of housing. One of the most distressing things in the episode that you guys just did about trafficking was hearing about people who were perhaps legitimate trafficking victims who were rescued and then dumped at homeless shelters. Yeah. Given no resources, given no money. Uh, and, and dumped into a place where they're just as vulnerable to yeah. further exploitation yeah, yeah, yeah. as they were in the first place. Yeah. And, I read, yeah. I read something amazing. We're in violent agreement. We're just yes, spinning exactly. each other up now. <laughs> I read something the other day about how there's this myth that the Super Bowl is like a huge spike in sex oh, trafficking and this happens every single time. Decades. And of course, it's fake. You never see any justification for this. This is consistent across South Africa and Germany, across the U.S. There's no evidence for it. But there was a really interesting story about how a bunch of sex workers and people who identified as trafficking victims were given housing. They were basically given hotel rooms for the period of the Super Bowl. They were given 10 nights in a hotel and then they were sent back on the street. And so it's like, 
this is this is the extent to which we care about trafficking victims, right? It's like we're we're going to do this thing for PR. We're going to say, oh, we're giving free hotel rooms to people that might be vulnerable to doing sex work, survival sex work. And then it's like, oh, sorry, victims. It's been 10 days. Bye. And they got nothing. And it's like, so what are we spending money on? During the Super Bowl, in the hotel room <laughs> that they've been provided for them and made banks so that they could spend some money on a place to live after the Super Bowl. Michael Hobbs, reporter for HuffPost. HuffPost, Huffington. I, I've stopped correcting people. <laughs> reporter for Huffington Post and co host of the You're Wrong About podcast, which you need to be listening to. It's terrific. Thank you for coming back. Thank you. Hey, Dan. So I'm a straight 30 something year old woman on the online dating scene. And I just had a situation and I'm just curious to hear what you think about it. So I've been chatting with this guy for less than 24 hours and he's either playfully or explicitly asked me to send him a selfie by saying something like, you know, what do you look like right now? And I've just brushed it off by sending him like a funny gif or a little meme. And then he responded by saying, you know, people are fake on here and asking for a photo isn't an odd request. And while I totally understand what he's saying, I don't know why. It just makes me feel really uncomfortable. It makes me feel weird to send selfies to this person that I've never met and that I've barely talked to. And I'm just wondering, you know, am I being unreasonable? Is he being unreasonable? Uh, it just makes me feel really icky and objectified. Um, and maybe I'm just being shy, but I've been dating online for over a year now and literally nobody else has been kind of this adamant about sending a live selfie to them. And it just makes me feel like he's paranoid or insecure. Um, so I'm just curious what your take is on this. Well, my first take is to put this guy in perspective. You say you've been dating online for a year. Women who are online and online dating get about 10 to 100 times more contacts from men than men get from women. So I can assume that you have had a lot of interactions with a lot of men. And this is the only guy who made this demand, who wanted a in real time selfie from you to prove that you actually existed or for you to prove that you looked like the pictures that I assume were on your profile and that you weren't a fake. He was asking to know that you weren't a fake and that made you uncomfortable and you told him no and you weren't going to give him that selfie and Block him and move on and don't worry about it too much. That said, there are a lot of people online who are fake and someone who's been burned by a lot of fakes online might make this kind of request, might want to see a photograph taken just then. And the technology certainly makes that possible. You can counter if someone demands a photo because they worried you might be a fake that there are people online who are just photo collectors who are themselves fake. It doesn't sound like this guy asked you for a, a dirty picture, for a you know shirtless picture. He just asked you for a photo that would prove that you were who you claimed you were and prove that the photos on your page were accurate and that you were you. I think that's something and something perhaps reasonable that someone who's been burned a lot by online fakers might do. And I would be inclined, perhaps, if I liked this person and our interactions were otherwise positive, to give him the benefit of the doubt. And if I felt okay about it myself personally as a personal choice, send the picture. You didn't feel okay about it. You didn't feel inclined after your interactions with him to send the picture. And his reaction to your not wanting to send the picture proved, I think, after the fact that he wasn't someone you wanted to send that picture to anyway. 
And again, he's just one guy in a year of online dating. Don't worry about him too much. Don't overthink this. Don't stress out about it. Just block him and move on. All right, before we get to your feedback calls, let's read your tweets. Michael Thurkill tweets, returned home from a lovely dinner with friends, and my wife said, fuck first is the greatest invention of all time. Thank you for the advice at Fake Dan Savage. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. You're welcome, Michael. And props to the wife for remembering to fuck first. Jedi Knitter tweets, at Fake Dan Savage quoting me, there is no fetish or kink hall of fame. I say, why the hell not? Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I think somebody should get right on that. I nominate you, Jedi Knitter, to get on that and create the first ever Kink Awards, Kink Hall of Fame. Somebody's got to do it. Why not you? And finally, Abby Kobielinski at Mrs. Kobe Book Club tweets, at Fake Dan Savage, for your Savage Lovecast parent looking for queer-friendly books and media for their preteen, please send them my way. I'm a fifth-grade teacher with a passion inclusive literature so go to mrs kobe book club click on her instagram she has book recommendations there so many people called in with recommendations for young people for tweens and early adolescents about media ya literature programs you can watch including rupaul's drag race so many great suggestions we want to encourage everyone because there are too many for us to include in any one episode to go to savagelovecast.com slash episodes slash 688 and leave your recommendations there in the comments thread so it will exist forever your recommendation will be there forever for anybody who listens to that show and wants to find their way to that media thank you everybody for your suggestions i'll run some of them in my weekly roundup of my column at the strangers blog slog as well and now your response calls hey dan uh this is a response call to the lip biting issue um i I love you, and usually I agree with you 99.999% of the time, but I think you were too easy on her. Boyfriend, if you're listening, dump her ass. Your limit is your limit. Like, I'm even in the BDSM community, and my hard limit is lip biting due to health issues. And if you're called a baby for having your own limits for your own reasons, that's just indicative of a bigger problem. So, boyfriend, if you're listening... Dump the motherfucker already. In response to the woman in episode 688, whose son accidentally sent her uh, porn, the, the message that you had is great. Let's talk about it. Let's make sure people understand. Uh, but the thing that I'd say is unlink your Apple ID. If you guys are using the same Apple ID across multiple accounts, this will keep happening. Uh, it can happen a lot. It can share a lot of different things. You don't want that to happen. So if you guys use different Apple IDs, uh, and join them as a family account, which if you don't know how to do that, you can look it up online or go into an Apple store. Should be all set. Shouldn't happen again. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the caller in episode 688, whose friend was just diagnosed with herpes. I reacted a similar way when I found out that I had it as well. Um, and then I found out that my mom has it as well as a handful of my friends. Most potential sex partners were totally fine with it when I told them. And I only encountered one asshole who wouldn't touch me, but wanted me to suck his dick. When my boyfriend and I started sleeping together, he told me his previous two girlfriends also had it. And even after us having sex for four years without condoms, he has never shown any symptoms. I take a cyclovir and we don't have PIV when I have an outbreak. I found that physical irritation as well as stress can spark outbreaks, like wearing lacy underwear and tight jeans, so I switch to comfy undies and wear yoga pants a few days a week. 
I've actually been meaning to call in to respond to the caller in episode 685 with the partner who had been experiencing more outbreaks while using a cock cage. Uh, just to share my experience with outbreaks and physical irritation kind of sparking my nerve endings. But that could just be my experience. But anyway, be kind to yourself. Fulfilling sex and love are still totally possible. Fuck the stigma. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a comment or a question, give us a call. 206-302-2064. Even better than calling, though, use the Voice Memo app on your phone and email us your question at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. The sound quality is so much better when you use the Voice Memo app, so we encourage everybody to do just that. It's a new year, and my Dirty Little Film Festival is hitting the road with all new films. Hump will be opening in Albuquerque at the end of January and continuing on to Miami, Oakland, Los Angeles, Long Beach, and Palm Springs. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets and find out when Hump will be coming to a city near you. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Michael Hobbs on Twitter at Rotten in Denmark. And if you aren't already listening to Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall's terrific show, You're Wrong About, get on your podcast platform, whatever app you use, and subscribe to You're Wrong About Now. It is wonderful. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.